this morning, the last four chapters of 2 Samuel. It's in the Old Testament, right after 1 Samuel, uh, right before the, the, uh, the two kings and the two chronicles and Psalms and Proverbs and all that good stuff. Maybe you're visiting with us this morning or you hadn't been here in a while, maybe you've been working or out a bunch this summer, but uh, Kevin and I have been uh, tag-teaming going through First and Second Samuel, really just an overview. Uh, I gave an analogy early on that uh, what Pastor Brian has been doing in John is like walking through the downtown streets where you're looking at every shop window, you're looking at all the, you know, the little diamonds on the ground for the Walk of Fame and things like that, and, and what Kevin and I have been doing is more like driving down the interstate. Uh, you see little glimpses of a town, but you're taking big chunks of real estate uh, all at one time. And so this morning, we're going to wrap up 2 Samuel. Uh, and next week will be the final installment, just looking at an overall summary and overall overview of First and Second Samuel. But today, essentially, we're going to be closing out our time studying King David. Now, First Kings actually starts uh, with the last days of David's life and his death. But essentially, today, we'll be wrapping up looking at David's life in 2 Samuel 21 through 24, <clears throat> and I've entitled today as For Real Real, For Real Real. We're going to look at some real things uh, that was in David's life. Now, we're not going to go, you know, chapter 21, then 22, 23. We're going to bounce around a little bit, but I want to look at six things that, uh, that, that we're really looking at the scope of David's life, but also with these last passages in 2 Samuel, some real elements that were in David's life. See, <clears throat> I think sometimes people, whether it be subconsciously or consciously, we read things like this and we think, well, it was a different time. Uh, it was a different area. It was a different lifestyle. Like it's, it's more like, oh, I just have historical knowledge instead of realizing that the people that are recorded in First and Second Samuel were real people that had real struggles in real lives. They had real things that they had to deal with. God worked in real ways in their lives. So it's, it's so much more than just learning history. It's about learning things that God did in these people's lives that we can also implement in our lives today, application that's just as real for us today as it was for them. And so we see these real things that happened in David's life. The first thing we're going to look at is that David had some real challenges. David had real challenges. He had real situations in life that were really challenging for him. They're really difficult to handle. You know, you, you think back in the beginning, right, when he first kind of came on the scene and Saul was his father-in-law, and Saul hated him, and Saul was trying to kill him, and David had to leave his wife, uh, who was Saul's daughter, and he had to become a refugee fleeing for his life, and he had a hard time finding a place where he could call home, because everywhere he went, he, he saw adversity, uh, or, or Saul would, would find out he was there, and he would try to, to go and pursue him to kill him, and so uh, David had a real challenge there. Uh, David had real challenges with the fallout from his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah. Uh, Kevin covered a lot of that last week, you know, the immediate fallout uh, with uh, one of his sons, uh, Amnon, who, who raped his half-sister Tamar, and then her brother Absalom taking revenge uh, on Amnon's life and killing him. Uh, and then he also had the real challenge of his son Absalom later rising up to overthrow the throne, and so David had to flee because he didn't want to kill his own son, uh, and there was a civil war that broke out in Israel, as well as his trusted advisor, Ahithophel, who 
betrayed him. And so David had all of these challenges that he had to really fight through and work through and struggle through and try to get through in, in a godly way that honored the Lord. And so today we see two more situations at hand uh, that David's having to deal with, really challenging situation. Uh, the first one recorded at the beginning of chapter 21 uh, is the Gibeonites, the, the Gibeonites being avenged. Look in chapter 21, verse 1. It says, during the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. Now that alone, I, I can't imagine, I, I have to, I'm trying to think back. In my lifetime, I've never experienced a famine like this, but I know they're real, right, for people. But I can't imagine that stretching out for three years. You know, maybe year one, you just say, oh, well, it was kind of a bad year. It was a recession year. Maybe year two, you go, okay, well, this is not really what we needed. This wasn't the comeback story that we needed. By the time you get to year three, three years is a long time to have a famine in the land for the people to suffer through, but then for David to try to lead the people through was really, really difficult. So in the midst of this, David sought the face of the Lord because he realized, like, okay, well, God's hand is no longer on us. There's got to be something here. And the Lord said to David, it is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Even in his grave, Saul is wreaking havoc on Israel because of how terrible of a leader he was. Verse 2, so the king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not part of Israel, but they were survivors of the Amorites, and the Israelites had sworn to spare them. Now, you have to go all the way back to Joshua's time to see that, but it was a treaty that Israel had with the Gibeonites uh, to, to not pursue them and to not destroy them. But Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. Now, the Bible doesn't record for us this scenario of Saul trying to annihilate the Gibeonites, but apparently because it's said here by the Lord, it happened. And, and it happened. And, and what the interesting thing about that is that Saul was actually a descendant of the Gibeonites. His great-grandfather was a Gibeonite. And so we don't know why. We don't know what, what was going on there. But whatever his motive, whatever his method was, Saul is now bringing... Uh, this, this judgment on Israel because of his bloodthirsty desire to annihilate them. So we look in verse 3, and what you see is that David has always had this heart to, uh, to restore and to, and to have peace. We, we saw this several weeks ago. With It was a really bloody transition when Saul died to, to David becoming the unified king. And even in the midst of all of that, all of the strife, all of the murder, all the, all the uh, scheming and everything that was going on, David was wanting it to be done in a way that honored the Lord. So David was like, we need to seek restitution. We need to figure out how to, how to help the Gibeonites and how to, how to resolve this. And so verse 3, David asked them, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? And this is their response in verse 4. The Gibeonites answered him, we have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. They basically said, look, we, there's no right for us to get paid for this. The end of verse 4, David asked, well, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 5, they answered the king, as for the men who destroyed us and plotted against us that we have decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. They said, basically, here's what we want. We want seven male descendants of Saul to be put to death for retribution of what Saul did to annihilate our people. Now, if you're David, can you imagine 
Can you imagine that, that, that A, this is the request of you, and B, you have to choose which seven? You have to choose which seven. Well, if you, if you know the historical context and you've been around, Saul, you know, uh, Jonathan had a son, Mephibosheth, that, that David had grafted into his family, and it basically had said, like, I won't let any harm come to you. I'm, I'm going to preserve, you know, Saul and Jonathan's legacy because of my love for them. Well, now he's in a predicament. He's in a predicament. Look at the end of verse 6. So the king said, I will give them to you. Now, I have to confess, when I read that passage and when I'm studying that passage, I really struggle with that. I really struggle with how David could do that. Like, why didn't David take up for them? Warren Wiersbe writes a great commentary on the Bible, and one of the things he said about this, for me, shed some light on it, and maybe it will for you as well. He said, we today who have the New Testament and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ view this entire episode with mingled disgust and dismay. But we must keep in mind that we're dealing with law, not grace, and Israel, not the church. The law of Moses required that an unsolved murder be atoned for by sacrifice, laid out in Deuteronomy 21. So how much more a known slaughter that was perpetrated by a king? However, we must keep in mind that the death of the seven men was not atonement, but legal retribution. Though David did not commit the crime, he had to choose the seven men who would die. And that was not an easy thing to do. David now has to make a decision for a mistake that somebody else made. And that's a challenge that will come to you and to me sometimes in life, right? We don't always face challenges because of bad decisions we've made. But sometimes we end up on the receiving end of a challenge because of a bad decision somebody else made. You know, but maybe the most practical example I can think of will be a, a car wreck, right? If, you, if you've ever been in a car wreck, most of the time, half the people involved in the wreck were doing nothing wrong. Like a girl almost T-boned me the other day because she wasn't paying attention and she blew through a red light. It, 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 it got my heart racing for sure, you know? And, and I was doing nothing wrong, but I was almost in the midst of a challenge because of a bad decision somebody else had made. And so here's David in the midst of this, of this, this retribution that has to take place. Verse 9, so he handed them over to the Gibeonites who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together, and they were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. David chose, of the seven, he chose two males who, who were born to one of Saul's concubines and five who were born to one of Saul's uh, daughters. So two sons and five grandsons of Saul. But in the midst of this hardship, right, you have a three-year famine, you have this legal execution, if you will, uh, of seven of Saul's uh, heirs. In the midst of that, David takes action to help put the house of Saul at rest. Look in verse 12. He went and he, David, went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen their bodies from the public square at Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down in Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah in Benjamin. Saul was a Benjamite and did everything the king commanded. You say, okay, well, what's happening here? David realizes the hardship that, that the land is taking right now between the famine and now between having to turn over seven of Saul's sons 
And so David, in pursuit, he's legally bound, I guess you would say, to turn these men over. And so, but he, in his own, takes an initiative and an act of grace to try to bring some peace to the house of Saul. And he goes and gathers the bones of Saul and Jonathan and their men who were died and battled and were taken away, brings them back and gives them a proper burial, which means a lot to a lot of people around the world in their cultures. And after that, it says right here, God answered their prayer in behalf of the land. What a challenging situation David found himself in. Well, there's another one, his battles against the Philistines, right? Early on in David's reign, uh, David became the greatest military leader in all of Israel's history. Early on in his reign, the Philistines would attack a lot. Now, because they dominated King Saul, right? You know, and, and they tried to exercise their dominance on David, but it didn't work. Uh, nor did it work for anybody else. If you look back in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, it says, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and he subdued them. And later on in that chapter, two other places, it says the Lord uh, gave David victory everywhere he went. David became a solid military leader. But what you notice is that after his fall with Bathsheba and with Uriah, you know, the Lord said, look, you're going to have a lot of turmoil, and, and it's just not going to be the same. I forgive you, but, but it's just not going to be the same. And the Philistines began to attack him, and he constantly had these challenges. Look in chapter 21, verse 15, right? Uh, number one, once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. Verse 18, number two, in the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. Verse 19, number 3, in another battle with the Philistines at Gob. Number 4, in verse 20, in still another battle which took place at Gath. Now, don't get it wrong. Israel won all these battles, okay? <laughs> it's, it's not like the Philistines took them over. But nobody bats a thousand in battle, okay? And, and so lives were lost. And one of the challenges that David had is that as he got older, and the repercussions of his, his poor leadership decisions was that these battles weren't as easy as they used to be, and he wasn't seen as much of a threat as he used to be. And so David had these challenges of the Philistines specifically continuing to invade them and him continually have to send his men to battle. So what's the application in this, right? When we look at David and he had some real challenges, what's the application for you and for me? I think the application is, is that no matter how godly we are, or how righteous of a life we live. Life is hard. Life is hard. We live in a broken world. We will all face difficult times, and we will all face challenges, and some of them will be self-induced, like David having to deal with the ramifications of his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, and some of them won't be self-induced, like him having to deal with the Gibeonites because of Saul's sin. But the point of the matter is is that we shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that just because we're followers of Christ life is all rainbows and unicorns right there's a lot of real challenges because we live real lives in a real broken world and things will be hard and things will be difficult but the Lord will be there with us through them all so number one we see that David had some real challenges number two we see that David had some real struggles he had some real struggles he was not perfect. He was not perfect at all. We saw two weeks ago when we studied Bathsheba, right? We were reminded that you and I may not all struggle with the same thing, but you and I do struggle with something. We all have something that we struggle with. James chapter 1, right? And it says in there, 
that, that when you and I are dragged away by our own evil desires, we all have something in there that Satan can find and take hold of. Think about like the life of David, the same zeal and conquering spirit that David had to slay a lion, to slay a bear, to slay a giant by the name of Goliath is the same zeal and conquering spirit that David had to take Bathsheba, to kill Uriah, and to feed his military ego, right? You have to think about the, the person. And, and the thing is, is that in here in chapter 21, verse, no, chapter 24, sorry, flip over to chapter 24, we see here toward the end, it says, verse 1, the anger Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, in here it says that God incited David. Now, we said this before, uh, just in case you hadn't heard it. So, 1 Chronicles is a rehash of 1 and 2 Samuel. So, a lot that you hear in 1 and 2 Samuel is also recorded in 1 Chronicles. In 1 Chronicles, it says that Satan incited David to take this census. Well, that's a big difference between God doing it and Satan doing it. So you go, well, so how, how can that be? Dr. Wiersbe says that, that what happens is that God incited David to the number of people while First Chronicles 21 names Satan as the culprit. Both are true. God permitted Satan to tempt David in order to accomplish the purpose that he had in mind. Now, we talked about how David had these desires, right? So if Satan is involved in tempting David to do something and David acts in response to that, then we can assume that there was something inside of David in his fleshly nature that he was succumbing to, and in this case, it would be taking a military census, feeding his military ego. Apparently, David struggled with tendencies for, for leadership in regards to military. He was a great military and a great fighting warrior. Think about this, guys. Every one of us has gifts and talents that, when kept in check, can be used for great things to serve the Lord. Those same gifts and talents that David had to be a mighty warrior helped him slay Goliath and save Israel. He fought the Philistines in several battles, even when he was a refugee, to save different towns and cities. He battled against so many different enemies who came in to, to take over Israel, and he kept them at bay. David did some great things when those things were kept in check. But when they're not kept in check, they can lead us to do some really foolish things with them. So David wants this nationwide military census, okay? So in verse 2, the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many men there are. The Bible doesn't record to us what was going on in David's heart. But we can assume, putting the pieces together, that there was something there motivating him in a way that didn't honor the Lord to go and take this military census. So verse 3, Joab, who was the commander of David's army, replied to David, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of the Lord and the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? David had a great companion in Joab who made an appeal to, to, to ask David, not not being insubordinate, but just saying, like, hey, man, is there really a need for this? Should, should we really do this? Just kind of asking the question. And I want you to put a pin in that because we're going to come back to it in just a few minutes. Verse 4, 
The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. Verse 8, after they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Nine months and 20 days it took to do this census, to go through the whole country, counting all the men that were eligible to be in the king's army if needed. I mean, that's a school year for crying out loud. That's That's a long time to be gone if you think about 10 months, pretty much, 10 months, and you say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it's, it's simply this, is that they went through, David heard what Joab's appeal was, and David said, no, let's just go ahead and do it. And an application for you and me could be, don't be blind to your weaknesses, <clears throat> right? David had some real struggles. Don't be blind to your weaknesses. Know where you're vulnerable, right? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about fighting the good fight against temptation, Know, as you grow in life and as you mature in your walk with Jesus, know where you're vulnerable so you know where to put some extra effort to fortify those areas of your heart and those areas of your minds. Because everyone in this room has some really good talents and gifts that were given to you by the Lord that when kept in check, you guys could do some amazing things to impact the kingdom and to impact people around you. But when not kept in check, those same gifts and talents can be used in a way that could do harm and dishonor the Lord. So David had real challenges. David had real struggles. The third thing David had was David had real support. David had real support. We saw it right here in verse 3, right? When he wanted to send the military out to, uh, to, to go to the census, Joab. Jo- Joab wasn't being insubordinate. He just says, hey, David, it's a good friend. It's a good companion. He, he wants David to, to think about why he's doing this and, and to reconsider. <clears throat> David had a great support system. He also had his mighty men. Look in chapter 23, uh, verse 8. It lists out for us. You guys have heard us say this before. Uh, David had some really stud warriors. I mean, th- these were the dudes, like if, if you play... Uh, any time of Tom Clancy, like video game, these are the guys you're going to want to draft for your team. These are the guys that you're going to want to be. Look in uh, chapter 23, verse 8. It says, these are the names of David's mighty <clears throat> warriors. It lists kind of the top three. These are the three that made the platform, so to speak, gold, silver, bronze. But then he had several more that were in there as well. Joshab, Bahasabeth. Now, I know everybody loves biblical names, but stuff like Timothy and John and Mark and Luke, those, those roll off the tongue a little bit easier than this one. But he was the chief of the three, the gold medalist, if you will. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Bro, John Wick has nothing on this dude, okay? All right, I'll go ahead and say it right now. Like, John Wick has Jehoshaphat pajamas, okay? So... This guy killed 800 men in one encounter. No wonder he won the gold medal. That's, that's, that's a world record. The verse 9, next to him was Eleazar, and he was with David when he taunted the Philistines gathered at Pasdamim for battle, and then the Israelites retreated. But, Israelites st- but Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought a great victory that day. Dude stood there by himself. He's like, that's fine. I'll take him. Fought so hard that his, his hand literally locked around the sword. <clears throat> Verse 11. Next to him was Shema. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shema took his stand in the middle of the field, and he defended it, and he struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought a great 
victory. Look at 18. Abishai, the brother of Joab, right, the commander of David's army, raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. Verse 21. Benaiah performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Now, this is like just a side note in dude's resume. That would be the first thing. And I don't know that I would list anything after it, right? Greg Key, went down to a pit on a snowy day, killed a lion. Here's my references. Like, I don't, I'm like, what else do you need, right? War Eagle, I don't know. It's like, I mean, but for him, it's just a side note. Pit on a snowy day, killed a lion. He struck down a huge Egyptian, although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand. Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand, and he killed him with his own spear, as Kevin would say, what a boss move. Verse 24, among the 30 were, and they list all these. Here you go. You ready for your mind to be like, oh, snap. Verse 39, and Uriah the Hittite. There was 37 in all. Just showing the level of betrayal, right, that Bathsheba, and in and, and the and instance with Bathsheba. So David had these guys, okay? Now you say, well, why is that important? <clears throat> Number one, David was a refugee for a good chunk of his, his young adult life, and these men were around him to protect him. They had a lot of battles that they fought, right? David was trying to establish Israel as a strong nation, and you have to have strong military people in order to do that. David had that. He had that support with him. Now, you ready for your mind to be blown? Here's a little side trivia for you, okay? And it's fine. You can go ahead and pull out that emoji with the guy's like, and your mind's going to melt and flow out your ears, but it's going to be fun because you're going to have fun at trivia night, okay? Chapter 21, verse 19, all right? In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhanah killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. I have no idea what's impressive about a weaver's rod, but apparently it was impressive enough to say that dude's spear was like it. So dude had a massive spear. Whose brother was he again? It's open book test. Whose brother was it again? Goliath. Okay, all right. So Goliath is somebody we have in David's history. Let's keep reading. Chapter, chapter 21, verse 20. And still another battle which took place at Gath. Now, where did we know Goliath's hometown was? Gath. Okay, so here we are. There was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. Gave him a little bit of an upper hand when you're trying to use fingers and toes to count, right? But anyway, bad dad joke. We'll keep going. He also was a descendant from Rapha. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shammah, David's brother, killed him. You ready for this? Verse 22. There were four descendants of Rapha and Gath, and they all fell at the hands of David and his men. Now, you remember when David was fighting Goliath, David was convinced that God was going to give Goliath in his, into his hands. No doubt whatsoever. So the question has always been raised, why did he pick up five stones instead of just one? I'll tell you why. Goliath had four brothers. They were all mighty warriors. And David was like, bro, I got one for each, of me, each one of you if you come after me. Awesome. When you read the Bible, see? When people say the Bible's boring, I'm like, I don't know what Bible you're reading. My Bible's pretty freaking cool, right? So David had this support group around him, right? He had, he had a great support system. He had godly parents. He had loyal friends. He had spiritual influencers in his life, people who had his back and held him accountable. Now, that was very, very needed and very, very helpful for David because David had real challenges with real struggles, right? 
And, and he needed that real support. So the question for you and for me is, do we have such people in our lives? Not people who can slay 800 people at a time, right? You don't need somebody to be like, I got your back, bro, and then go break somebody's neck. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. But somebody that's got your back as far as I like, can help you in the midst of these struggles. I heard a pastor once say, get your crew before you have your crisis. So that when your crisis comes, you have your crew to help you walk through that. And that's what David had so david had real challenges he had real struggles he had real support david also had real repentance the fourth thing david also had real repentance after raising his hand against the lord's anointed saul we see that david repented for his actions that he took after he responded in the flesh to nabal david repented and asked for forgiveness after his adultery with bathsheba and his murder with uriah psalm 51 and psalm 32 we read excerpts of that a few weeks ago are known as the Psalms of Repentance. David was a man of repentance. And even after the census that we looked at a minute ago, back in chapter 24, look in verse 10, it says, David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. David's conviction and his repentance after he realized he had done something wrong, I think is something that makes a big mark on his life. Look what happens in verse 11. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. God says, look, I forgive you, but there's still consequences for your sin in doing this military census, so I'm going to let you choose. He gives him three options. Number one, three years of famine again. I can't imagine what that would be like to go through the first time. I can't imagine anybody would say, let's, let's do that. Let's run that one back. No, nobody wants to run that one back. Number two, for three months, for three months, you'll be pursued by your enemies. Or number three, for three days, there'll be a plague to fall on your land. So David says, I'll take plagues for 300, please. In that three days that the plague came, 70,000 Israelites died. That's over 23,000 people a day. That is insane and intense. At the end of the three days, the Lord let the plague leave. Look in verse 18. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. He said, look, go to Arana the Jebusite and offer a sacrifice to the Lord at his place. And, and, and this will set everything right. And David did it. David did it. David didn't send somebody else. David did it himself. David's the one who sinned. David's the one who went on his own. And he went to do this. And look in verse 22. This is, this is astounding. I don't want you guys to miss this because we've gone through so many details today. Because this is really pinnacle right here. Verse 22. Arana said to David, let let my lord, the king, take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Arana says, look, whatever you need, just take it. It's on the house. It's on the house. We'll foot the bill. You're the king for crying out loud. You shouldn't have to pay for this. Look at what David says in verse 24. I think this is what sets David apart from some of the other leaders that we've seen in the Samuels. But the king replied to Arana, no, I insist on paying you for it. Here it is. If you underline in your Bible, underline this. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David realized that if it's free, it's not a sacrifice, right? Now, hang on to that. We're going to come to that again in the end. 
So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen. He paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord. He built it with his, bare, with his own hands and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague of Israel was stopped. What's our application here? Two weeks ago, we emphasized the importance of fostering repentance. Fostering repentance in our lives. David definitely had his shortcomings and his downfalls. So how can he still be considered a quote-unquote man after God's own heart? He did some terrible things. I believe it's because in correlation to him being a man of many mistakes, David was also a man of much repentance. A man who understood, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. That's a man after God's own heart. Real challenges, real struggles, real support, real repentance. Next, number five, because of that, David experienced some real grace. David experienced some real grace because of his real repentance. God shielded him while Saul was pursuing to kill him. God blessed him with a covenant of kingship and an eternal reign. God blessed him with great military victories. God blessed him with a mighty kingdom. God extended his prominent grace forgiving David from his sins when he repented. And David wrote many songs of worship to the Lord as a response to that grace that he experienced. Go to chapter 22, just a few excerpts out of this. This is known as David's song of praise. All right, David was a mighty warrior, but he was also a mighty worshiper at the same time. Verse 1 and 2, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He's recognizing who God is and what he's done for him. Verse 7, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God, and from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. 1 John 1, 9, right? When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Verse 26 and 27, the attributes of God that David had experienced firsthand. To the faithful, you show your faithfulness. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. And then all of this comes to a conclusive declaration of David's experiences of God's grace in verse 50. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises of your name. Let's bundle this all together as we prepare to close out the end of David's life here. He had real challenges and he had real struggles. In the midst of that, he had real support and real repentance. And because of that, he had a real experience with God's grace. And lastly, we see David had a real impact. He had a real impact in the midst of all of these things. Not only did David become the greatest military king in all of Israel's history, notice what 1 Chronicles chapter 29 closes out with. It says, David, son of Jesse, was king over Israel. He ruled over Israel for 40 years, seven in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. And he died at a good old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth, and honor. Guys, David is a very significant person in history. Very significant person in history, both national history for Israel, but also spiritual history for us. But, don't miss this, ultimately David is not the mark. We should not seek to dare to be a David. We should not seek to slay our own giants. These make for great books and for great Bible study titles. But, instead, we should recognize that Jesus is the mark that we should dare to be Jesus and that we should worship the true victor 
over giants in Jesus Christ, the one who gave us the ultimate victory. David is just a piece on the board to help us see the ultimate play in Jesus Christ. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. The Gospels start with the genealogy of Jesus. And I think David himself would say, man, I did some big stuff in life, and I helped a lot of people, but ultimately David recognized that he was not the center of it all. And all of these worship psalms, and, and, and just read, I mean, most or a good chunk of the psalms that we have, the psalms of worship were written by David. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah. Verse 6, Jesse the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon. Verse 16, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. It's great to look at people like David in Scripture and see what they've done and how the Lord used them and the Christ-like characteristics, but ultimately, David isn't the mark for us. It's Jesus. David points us to Jesus. David points us to the one who truly understood it is no sacrifice if it costs me nothing. He paid the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate restoration.